My name is Copeland Reed, and my fear is not being accepted. Hello, and welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. My guest this week is Corporal Andy Reid, MBE. In October 2009, Andy was blown up by a Taliban improvised explosive device while on patrol in Helmand province, Afghanistan. Injured so badly that it was thought he would not survive, he defied the odds to the extent that within a month he was able to meet up with members of his patrol again. What he has achieved since then is little short of unbelievable. Andy is now a successful writer, has opened a cafe in his local town, he got married, has two children, and is in demand as a public speaker on coping with adversity. Andy also established the charity, the Standing Tall Foundation. Andy is one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. This episode is not sponsored, but if you would like to support the Standing Tool Foundation by going to standingtool.co.uk, I know it would be hugely appreciated. Hello, Andy Reid. Hi. So, Andy, I know we had a, a lovely coffee the other day and what was going to be an hour coffee ended up, I think, a three-hour coffee. <laughs> so just love chatting with you. If we just go back, what inspired you to, to join the army? Back in the day when I was like 10 or 11 years old, um, I used to go to my grandparents' house on, on a Sunday as a family for, for a Sunday dinner. And uh, they had quite a nice uh, old house and under the stairs was like a little cupboard. And um, and in there was some hats and handbags and fur coats and things like that. And my sisters used to go in there and they'd get my grandma's fur coat and do whatever girls do when they're dressing up. They're a little bit annoying, uh, my sisters. Um, <laughs> but, but I used to go into the cupboard of the stairs and uh, get my grandfather's old army jacket and his old army scarf. And I'd run round in the garden pretending to be in the army. And then I'd come inside and sit down with my grandfather. And he'd been all the way through the, um, the Second World War in the Royal Tank Regiment. And he'd tell me these amazing stories all the time of what he did in the desert and, and, and where he was in France and in Italy. And I was just so inspired by, by my grandfather and these stories that he had to tell that I just thought one day when I grew up, I'm going to follow in his footsteps and I want to join the armed forces as well. And at school, I know you didn't have a have a great time, and you have said that you'd either join the army or go off the rails. Was there a moment where you nearly did go off the rails? Yeah, you know, I did some things uh, during my time at school and and after school. You no, know, doing some things that I shouldn't have done. Really, you know, hanging around with the, with the wrong people, in the wrong crowd, and they, and they were doing uh, the wrong things. And I kind of got caught up in that a, a little bit. And then just thought one day, you know, I need, really need to work hard and achieve this goal of, of joining the armed forces. Andy, did you feel fearful about joining the army? I didn't feel any fear at the time because watching the, uh, the old adverts on TV back in the day for the, for the army, it was like somebody running around in the, in, in the woods and then it was someone on a, on, a, on a beach and things like that. Now, when I had the idea of joining the army, there was no real conflict happening. So it's more the feel of, of adventure. This is going to be a, a massive adventure. Never the feel of like I'm joining something quite dangerous. I thought that's what my grandfather did, 
um, on D-Day beaches, you know, during the Second World War. Um, that kind of has passed now, and what I'm joining is just going to be a, a big, a big adventure and a way of escaping. Uh, the situation that I'm in at the moment where I'd weren't, I weren't working, like I said, I was maybe following that wrong path. So it's more of a, a fear of, of adventurism than, uh, than fear. And how old were you when you joined the army? Yeah, so I went at 16. I tried to join the army at 16 and I went down to the local careers office and unfortunately I was underweight for my height. Um, so they said, you're going to have to go away and, and put some weight on. So I went away and, and lost my, my way a little bit. And then it, it took me till I was 21. When I was 21, I'd, I'd put enough weight back on to be able to join the armed forces in 1997. So Andy, then we come to the 13th of October, 2009. It was a Tuesday, wasn't it? Can you tell us what happened that day? Yeah, I believe it was a, I believe it was a Tuesday, yeah. I, I was 33 then and um, I'd done... Previous tours, two other tours of Northern Ireland, a tour of, of Kosovo, two tours of, uh, of, um, of Iraq. But um, going to Afghanistan, that, that was a, a whole different different place to be going. There was genuine fear then. I was genuinely um, afraid for, my, for myself a little bit and, and, and fearful of the guys I was taking out there. Um, a lot more pressure on being able to do the job that you that you've been trained to do. A whole different environment. Watching it on the on the news, what was happening over there, and we went out there as what's called uh, BCRs, so battlefield casualty replacements. So we knew we were stepping into a dangerous um, environment that we were going. Um, so on the thirteenth of October, I got asked to go on a routine foot patrol, go and search some compounds or some houses. For some uh, weapons or bomb making equipment i was going to be the the lead section so we had uh, me and my seven guys and then two sections um, in reserve we, but generally go on patrol as a platoon of men about 30 men all together um so we were set off at half past four in the morning we set off at a young guy in front of me called jamie he had his metal detector the uh, the valon and he was sweeping that from left to right as he was going along and the rest of the guys were in file uh, following uh, my directions of where we were going. And uh, we started walking up the main road up the hill and there was a guy who was fixing his car, got to the top of the hill and there was a guy herding some goats about. I remember I remember seeing that. And then Jamie stopped and said, Andy, there's um, barbed wire here. He said, we could have to go in a different direction. So I said, OK, Jamie, don't worry, take a knee, uh, look out to your front. I told the rest of the guys to, to kneel down, buddy-buddy system, get some water on board, observe their arcs. So I, I looked at my watch and it was um, about five to five in the morning. So I, I know that at five o'clock in the morning, the local people start going to prayers. So at quarter to five, ten to five, people generally start walking about. So I thought, right, we're going to set off down there, get ourselves down into the into the village. Uh, so I said, right, Jamie, let's go, mate, get your kit on. I want you to follow that third track um, there, pal. So Jamie stood up, started getting his kit together, getting his day sack on, got his metal detector, um, good to go. And then uh, started walking behind Jamie. I was probably about two metres behind Jamie, observing my arc, seeing where I was going, watching where Jamie was going, seeing what the boys were doing. And then I went about two or three metres forward, and then I stepped on the, uh, the, I, the IED device. So the, the next thing then that I was aware of that I was laying on the floor on my back, a big dust cloud all around me, all my mouth was full of dust and dirt. It was quite strange because I weren't in any pain. I felt like a stunned numbness throughout my body, but I knew something violent had happened to me. 
So I looked down and I couldn't see my legs at that stage. So straight away I started thinking self-help, I need some first aid and in my right hand pouch, the same as everybody else, I had my morphine and tourniquets in there. So I started thinking some self-help. So I looked across to my uh, left hand and my finger was hanging off. So I made a fist and, and kept hold of that finger. Um, and then I looked across my right arm and it was twisted behind my back. So I kind of, I knew I couldn't help myself at that stage. So I just instantly started shouting, probably screaming as loud as I possibly could um, for the medic. But it was quite surreal. I couldn't, I couldn't hear myself screaming, but I, I knew my mouth was opening. I knew I was, I was screaming. So it, it was quite a surreal situation to, to be in. Uh, but luckily, uh, Jamie had been blown forward in the blast, took some shrapnel to his back and his behind. But he instantly started crawling back towards me. Um, he got into my first aid kit, got my morphine out of my tourniquets and started applying uh, them to myself. And then one of the guys come back from the, the rear of the section and I could see him speaking to me. He was obviously reassuring me that I was, that was going to be okay, but I couldn't hear um, anything that, that he was saying. Uh, but I knew the guys were there then. I knew the guys would do the job that they had the train to do. We've, we've been in this situation before, unfortunately, where we'd, we'd lost two guys on a, another patrol that, that we'd been on. So the, the guys were well tuned into what they had to do instantly, and the, the, the army training kicked straight in. So the guys were there, so I, I closed my eyes then and kind of drifted um, in and out of consciousness. Um, and what, what happened was then the, the company 2i, the, the um, section 2IC, so they got on got onto the radio, reported the incident that that had happened, um, and they decided to, rather than bring a helicopter uh, to our location, because we were only uh, three kilometres away from camp, where we had a secure helicopter landing pad uh, on our camp, they decided to send a vehicle um, out to our location. We just walked down that same track, so we knew that was clear for the vehicle to get down. And they got me on the back of a stretcher, on the back of the vehicle, and then took me back to the main camp. Um, and then from there, I believe the doctors started tidying all my wounds up. Uh, they called in for a helicopter to come and get me back to Camp Bastion. Uh, and they said there could have been a helicopter there within five minutes, but there'd be no medical team um, on that helicopter. Um, now, there's a thing in, in Afghanistan called the, the Golden Hour, um, and this is where, you, from the point of injury, you've got an hour to get from your location back to Camp Bastion, or you, you're probably going probably gonna to lose your life. Um, so it's a 45-minute flight from our location, and they had to wait 10 minutes for a, for a helicopter. Uh, but obviously that was the right call at, at that time. There'd be, there'd be no point me as a triple amputee getting on a helicopter with no medical team um, on that helicopter. I would, I would not have made it back um, to Camp Bastion. Mm. So they got me back, back to Camp Bastion and, and tidied all my wounds up. And the, the doctors there and the surgeons you know, did an absolutely um, outstanding job uh, to, to put me back together and uh, put me into an induced coma. And then the 14th of October... They flew me back to Selios Hospital um, in Birmingham. And when you woke up, were you surrounded by family, by your girlfriend? Yeah, so they, they flew me back and I spent uh, three days in, a, in, in an induced coma. Uh, and I woke up for the first time and I remember being in a, a very dimly lit room when I, my, when I first opened my eyes and I took a big deep breath in. And all I could like smell and taste was like bleach and clean detergent and that kind of smell of death that they kind of having having hospitals it's a very strange smell i'm sure a lot of people have experienced that when they've been to visit loved ones who, who uh, have been ill um so that as i began then to focus more i looked down and i couldn't see my legs um at, at the end of that bed i could see just crisp white sheets and 
and I've seen some people um, stood around the bed and at, and at first I didn't know who these people were so I started shouting and screaming at these people I thought I was still in Afghanistan and I thought these people were you know, looking looking over me the last thing I remember was the, the um, device going off so I started shouting and screaming at these people and then uh, the doctor come over and started reassuring me that I was going to be okay and, and where I was um, and then as I, as I focused I realised the people who were there was my mum my and dad was there my stepmum, that's why I was probably screaming. And then my girlfriend, um, Claire, <laughs> was on the um, on the other side of the bed. So um, so the doctor started explaining to us what had happened and explaining what injuries I'd got. Said, you know, you lost your right leg uh, below the knee, your, your left leg above the knee, your right arm um, above the elbow, and you sustained some some damage to your to one of your fingers on your on your left hand. Um, luckily for myself, I had, I had no in, no internal injuries. And straight away when the doctor was explaining this to myself and the family, I kind of lay there and thought, I'm a survivor, not a victim. I thought, I'm still here. Uh, and unfortunately, like I say, two friends of mine passed away on a patrol that, that we were on. And um, seven of the guys from my unit passed away um, on that tour in Afghanistan. So I thought, you know, I'm still here. So I need to start to set myself some goals and, and start moving my life forward. And... Then uh, we we chat we start and chatted for a while the, the the family and then my parents kind of went away with with uh, with my stepmom and left me there um, with Claire and uh, Claire was twenty seven at the time a very uh, young lady had a, a great career we've been together about four months before I went over to Afghanistan uh, but during that four months I'd spent a month in Kuwait and I was socially stationed down south as well so only really coming home at weekends to spend time. Um, with Claire so you know I, I turned to Claire and I said you know Claire uh, I love you very much and I, I, I've missed a while I've been away but if you want to walk away from this relationship I won't hold it against you um, at all because it's going to be massively life-changing um, for yourself uh, as, it, as it is for me uh, and I closed my eyes and kind of put my head back on the pillow and crossed what little fingers I had had left and Claire luckily said, you know, Andy, you're the same person who I fell in love with, so you know, let's let's take this on together and let's you know, let's go on this journey together and we'll both become better and, and stronger people. And I suppose having having Claire there as well and that and that support, I can imagine really helped you to set those goals for yourself and to walk again because I know they said that they, that you you wouldn't be walking very soon, and you defied all the odds. Yeah, I think like you say, having Claire there and having the goals what I wanted to achieve, not just about me, about somebody else as well, and, and um, making it happen for them and, and giving back to them for supporting for supporting me was very important to me. So I've been writing to my cousin Carl, and I said, Carl, you know, uh, I've met this girl called Claire. She's amazing. So when I come out from Afghan, I said, you know, I'm going to ask her to marry me. Um, so my initial goal, I thought there's no reason why that has to change. There's no reason why I can't still walk down the aisle um, with Claire. So I, I put out uh, the, the ultimate goal that I wanted to set myself. But as soon as I set myself that goal, it did become quite daunting, thinking I'm laying in a hospital bed. I've got one arm. It's all strapped up. I can't even feed myself at the moment. How am I going to walk down uh, the aisle with Claire? There's going to be a lot of hard work, but... I thought, no, she's just committed now to me that she's going to stay with me and support me on this journey. And I thought, because of that, I need to I need to do this 
for her and show that I'm committed um, to her as well in this journey that, that, that we're on. So that was a long-term goal. And then one of the guys from the regiment the next day um, come to see me and said, Andy, you know, the, uh, the Duke of Wellington is going to come to camp. Everyone's going to get their operational service medal from the Duke of Wellington. All the mums and dads and wives and girlfriends are going to be there. The children's going to be there. It's going to be an absolutely an amazing day. And um, also the regiment's going back to Afghan. And I was just lay there for a short while once my friend had gone and I thought, you know, if I can stand up that day out of a wheelchair, get my operational service medal from the Duke of Wellington, maybe march off the parade ground, then all the mums and dads and wives and girlfriends and children will know that if their son and daughter, their daddy or their mummy gets injured, with hard work and determination, they can move their lives forward. Uh, and, and that was very important to me, I think, because... It's not just like us guys who have the fear of the places that we go into. You've got family units sat at home, watching the news, watching what's happening, expecting a phone call on a Sunday night, and then all of a sudden they don't get that phone call, and then the 10 o'clock news comes on and someone else has been killed. So they're just going to fear the worst. So I thought, if I can show them what can be achieved beyond injury, maybe it gives them a bit of hope for, mm. for their child going, going into that conflict. And you really have, Andy, shown that to to everyone, you know, that there's so much hope and you've inspired so many people. Um, it really is amazing. And you and Claire, I mean, what a love story. And now you have two children. But what I wanted to ask as well is, is coming out of that, out of hospital and then going forward, how did that impact your life? Because I know you said that you didn't suffer the trauma that some people have experienced but you do have tinnitus and because nobody sees it yeah it's, it's like um hidden injuries isn't it so you know people look at myself and they see you walking down the road or i wear shorts and t-shirt all the time because as an amputee you've got the same blood in your body but less places for it to go to and i've only got one extremity where the, the where the blood goes to the, the thinner area of your skin to be able to cool down. So I'm like a, an oven all the time walking around. I'm always red hot. So I wear shorts and t-shirt all the time. So people probably see me walking down the road and go, oh, wow, look at that guy, you know, triple amputee. That must be, must be so difficult. It is difficult, but putting the legs on and, and getting up and about and leaving the house is just part and parcel of, of what I've got to do every day to be the person that I want to be. But then the other things that maybe stop me doing what I'm doing more than worrying my legs is is the tinnitus, as you mentioned, a constant white noise um, in your head. I can hear it now, and that keeps you awake at night time. And then once you're awake, then your mind starts wondering about other things, and you start worrying about things, and your mind's kind of active. Um, and there's obviously other guys, you know, who served in the places that I've been to. They've not lost any limbs, but inside. You know, they've got these hidden injuries, be that PTSD, mental health injuries, maybe they've got tinnitus as well. Or they've just got other other issues, what's going on in the minds. Just because you can't see somebody's injury, it's not always physical. So you might see someone who's got a smile on the face uh, and you think they're having, a, they're having a great day. But, you know, no one can really see what, what depression looks like. Some people smile to hide it. And, and you didn't have that though, did you? I've not suffered with, with mental health issues so so far, you know. Um, if I get a bit run down, a bit tired, I do a bit a bit too much, I, things creep into my mind about 
things that I did in the armed force and things that, that, that I've experienced. And I kind of toss and turn at night time and Claire will recognise that and say, right, where's your diary? We're emptying that this week. You just grab a week off and, and, and chill out. So I'm very lucky to have someone like Claire who can recognise the signs. But at the moment, I, I keep myself really busy. Life is, is really, really good. You know, the, the children are, are fantastic. But who, who knows what's around the corner? Who knows what could trigger um, one day my PTSD? Mm-hmm. I could walk down the road and a certain colour car could, could trigger it off. The, the traffic light's changing. Um, from red to green as they do on helicopters when you're coming into land and things like that you know anything at all could could trigger it off and, and one day it, it might happen and, and but hopefully you know, I'll be in a position to be able to deal with that yeah and your kids how do you explain what happened to them do they feel any kind of anger and resentment about what has happened to their dad how do you explain the situation yeah it's it's, it's, it's very difficult because William's like seven now, so he's getting a little bit older. Where now he wants to know a little bit more. You know, he'll say, "Where, where did you go, Aunt Daddy, when you got injured?" So I went to Afghanistan, mate. And I said, "Who was it who who uh, planted the explosion?" I said, "Well, just there's just some bad man, some bad men there, mate. And you know, they they planted an explosion. Daddy had an accident, and now he's got these robot legs, uh, and that's it. You know, I, I am very mindful of mentioning." certain religions certain cultures certain races of people because you know i don't want william growing up with some kind of chip on his shoulder you know um the muslim people over in afghanistan were absolutely fantastic people when we were on patrol invite us into the courtyard let us sit in the shade give us some water from the well make you a cup of tea make you some bread you know they were they were really great people but unfortunately there was a small minority of them as we know uh, the, the Taliban who who um, weren't doing very nice things over there, but I don't want William growing up with a, some kind of chip on his shoulder against certain religion against certain people because it wouldn't it wouldn't be right. I've got to be mindful of what I'm saying when I'm, when I'm in and around him because he has got you know some Muslim people and children at his school. I wouldn't want him not to play with those children or resent those children because what happened to his daddy. It'd be wrong, wouldn't it? You know, some people just assume, don't they? You know, like um, I was in a service station one time. Uh, it was about midnight, and there's a guy who just like stood off to the off to the side of me, and he just said, "Yeah, you know them all. They're all them lot. I think we should do away with them all." And I'm like, "You talking to me, mate?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know all them." Oh, they're Muslims and that, you know, get them out of here. I was like, mate, what are you talking about? I said, that, you know, that's not my, that's not my opinion. You're, you're putting your opinions onto me, onto me, assuming that because I've been injured in a, in a, in a Muslim country, then I'm going to not going to be friends or, or like Muslim people, you know, and I think mm. it's just a bit, it's just a bit crazy, isn't it? You know, I've got some fantastic uh, Muslim friends who, who I've served in the army with you know they joined the british army the same as the same as me i served with them uh, in different in different places and you know, they're, they're actually fantastic mates of mine and talking about um assumptions and people making assumptions um do you think that in society today we can be slightly unaware of disabled people and a bit blinkered towards them your fear is the fear of, of, of not being accepted. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I suppose I have in some ways. I just, 
people are people are unsure what to, what to say to you as a, a disabled person. You know, and I think for me, I'm I'm like forty three year old bloke, the same as any other bloke. I like rugby, I like a bit of football, I like going for a beer. But it, it seems to think that people are unsure what to talk to you about or feel they can't they can't talk to you in case they say something wrong and a lot of it is like if you go to the the shops and you're out doing your shopping and then some little kid will say to his mum or dad oh look at that man he's only got one arm and then the parents will like oh don't be saying things like that and and, and drag the child away where i'll be more like yeah mate you know come over here this is what happened and and, and have a little conversation with them and, and encourage people to engage with disabled people a bit more, no. They've got they've got a lot to offer. We've got a lot to a lot to offer society, and I think sometimes you can just be kind of people are unsure. I get it because maybe some people are a bit angry, and little boys or girls or people staring at them or asking them, "Well, what happened here?" It's like it could be about well, what's got to do with you? you no, know, they could they, they could not be in the right place themselves or they've had a bit of a stressful time just trying to park the car and they struggle to try and get into the shop. So I, I, I do get it. Sometimes people maybe don't want to, to speak about what's happened to them, but for myself, I, I'm more than open. And I think the great thing about the uh, what's happened in the, the Afghan conflict and these injured guys what's come back is with the Invictus Games and the uh, the Paralympics more recently, it has made people obviously more aware, I think, of what can be achieved beyond injury and beyond disability. When you've got, you know, all ex-veterans on on the running blades, you know, smashing hundred meter runs out and and pole vaulting and cycling hundreds of miles on on bikes and things like that, it it does show other people what what can be achieved beyond uh, beyond injury. And Andy, your fear now of uh, you know the fear now and just in general of not being accepted and people making assumptions what have you learned from your own fear i think in a way myself i probably the fear manifests itself but i'm i'm the person that that does that so because i've decided you know andy reed standing tall that's the title of of my my talk and my book and what i um, try to be every day. I try to put myself on this pedestal where I think every day people expect to see me on my legs and doing the school run and walking around the shops and going to the rugby and I'm I'm there walking around. So even in, if I'm in pain, um, like I was the other day when we met up, I'd, I'd hurt my leg. I, I once have thought of coming to London. On, on the train and, and, and meeting yourself and the other meeting that, that I had um, or going to the rugby in my wheelchair because my legs hurting because I kind of put myself on this on this pedestal and I think that's what people expect to see which which they don't people would rather probably see me pain free happy enjoying the game not walking around wincing thinking ah oh, my legs aching a little bit so I think it's my biggest fear is probably they're not being accepted, but but, but that's down to myself. But no one, no one expects to see that. It's just I. It's what I assume people expect to see. Great. Yeah. It's hard to ex- yeah. hard to explain. No, no, I get, and I think everyone can take take something away from that. You know, anyone. You know, no matter what you've been through, is is that fear of 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 not being accepted and. 
not being included in society? Where does that fear come from? Is it in our heads sometimes? And also, is it outside of, of us? I think sometimes, sometimes both. I think it's shared. I think mine, a lot of it's in my head because it's what I assume people expect to see. People don't yeah. expect to see that. People just probably expect to see me there and being happy. So I, I maybe need to have a sit down myself and, re, and reassess, you know, what it is that I, I'm trying to achieve and what it is I'm trying to show people. And ultimately, whether you're in a wheelchair or you're up on legs, you're the same person. And you can inspire someone being in a wheelchair or on your legs. It's more mm-hmm. about your mindset and your, and your attitude than how you physically appear. In the book, if I could tell you just one thing by Richard Reed, you said your one thing is the most important thing is don't look back on what has happened. Instead, look forward to what you can do. Just crack on. And you are a living, breathing, walking example of this philosophy. Um, and it's, yeah, Andy, it's just so, so inspiring because it, you could have so easily gone the other way and you live life so positively. And every year when the kind of, I don't want to say anniversary, but the when the explosion happened on, on in October, how do you feel about that when that day arrives? Yeah, well, a lot of the guys call it the Happy Alive Day. Uh, and, I, and I suppose it is a, a day to, to celebrate and be happy that you are, you are still here. Um, but a lot of those guys and girls then kind of go to the pub and celebrate being alive. And I would imagine after a couple of hours in the pub, the probably then reality kicks in of what's actually happened. I like to try and do something a little bit more special on the anniversary of, of being injured so I can look back in, you know, 10, 20 years' time and think on the 13th of October, for example, 2011, uh, I climbed Mount Snowden. You know, it, it took me six hours to get to, to the top of the mountain, but when I got to the top of the mountain, I thought... 2009, I was lying on a stretcher in Afghanistan fighting for life. And now today, I'm at the top of this mountain. So I'd rather remember that and, and embrace the things that, that, that can be achieved and remember, remember the, day, the day for that. The day, 13th of October will always be the day that, that changed my life. But for me, it, it's a day, it is a day to celebrate because it's a day that my life became, became better. Um, you know, there's certain things that I can't do. I can't just break into a run. I can't play rugby anymore. But you know, being able to inspire other other people, the younger generation, put my children in bed at night time, read them a story, get them up in the morning, take them to school. You know, I have the lifestyle that that, that I've got at the moment. You know, it, it's absolutely amazing. And for me, doors open, and you can either shy away and think no or you can step through those doors and really embrace life and capture it and, and live it for, for what it is you know if if anything i've learned that it is life can be taken away from you quite quite quickly in the in the in the blink of an eye and a lot of people don't live life to the to the to the full potential and i just think you need to really enjoy it and, and embrace it because you only get um one opportunity um, to do that and Grabbing life and taking these opportunities is something that you've really done and you've done it by setting these goals for yourself. Um, a lot of them very physical and absolutely 
um, unbelievable. Is that something that you continue to do as a coping mechanism in a way to, to set yourself future goals? Yeah, 100%. You know, I've set myself that, that immediate goal of um, going home for the weekend when I was in hospital and I achieved that after 10 days. The doctors you know, walked away shaking his head at me when I told him I'd be going home um, on the Friday, um, just 10 days after being injured. And because he put that a bit of doubt in my mind, it made me more determined to want to, to, want to prove him wrong. So that was the, the immediate goal that I set myself and then getting my operational service medal um, in July 2010 and then walking down the aisle with Claire in September 2011. You know, I, since then I've just thought that this, re this really works, this immediate middle term and long term goal. And by having these and keeping rotating rounds, so once you've got to your immediate goal, then your next one becomes your long term, then your middle term, then you can start again. It's like a ladder, just like walking up a, up a ladder. And I've not, I've not achieved them all. There've been some upsets um, along along the way, but you sit back and reassess and think, why am I doing this? What what is the reason behind that I'm putting myself through all this? Like it's difficult at times, and it's a it's a, a sacrifice for myself. Cause I'm going to do a 400 mile bike ride. That's 11, 12 days away from from my family, mm. so I'm missing out on 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 being with them. They're 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 missing me. But I'm I'm, a, I'm away and it, it it helps me. It does it does help me keep moving myself forward. And I think you know being in the armed forces, I, I spent you know fifteen years in in the army before before I left, and thirteen of them years I spent living away from home on on a camp by myself. So I do like my own company as well, and I think that's important. You know being injured and then all of a sudden. 24-7 you're with your girlfriend and then becomes your wife it can be it can be difficult but so a little bit of a time away a bit of a challenge you know you're doing a good thing it, it, it's great for it's great for everybody and the motivational speaking that you do that inspires so many what piece of advice do you pass on to other people that are dealing with similar life challenges the the, the main things that cover during my, during my speech are um, you know, goal setting, resilience, dealing with adversity, um, mindfulness, well-being. You know, just putting those things in, into your daily routine, being a bit more aware of the surroundings um, that you're in. You know, we all you know, go to work on the train, maybe down to London, and you kind of got your head in your phone or you've got your head in on your iPad and you're typing emails away while you're there. But when you look out that window and there's some actually beautiful countryside you know what you can see rivers and there's animals in the field and there's tractors singing in the land and and all the rest of it and I think sometimes we can just get a bit a bit, a bit blinkered in in life and a bit blinkered in where we want to be in the direction that we're going in and sometimes we need to just stop for a minute and and look at the surroundings we've, we've got around around us and yeah. just be mindful of that um so but then you know I don't I always don't want people when I do my story and um, in the corporate world or whatever it is and, and and then look at me and go I can't complain now because I've got this sore back but Andy's only got one arm so I can't complain about my sore back 100% you, you can you know 100% anything any issue that you've got be it physical or mental issue going on in your life just talk about it because in your world that's a massive problem and it's stopping you doing what you want to do every day 
stopping you being that fun person that you generally normally are, then you need to resolve that problem. You know, each person's individual injury um, or whatever it is 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 um, individual to them. Yeah, it's I, all relative, isn't it's it? It's a relative. Yeah, that's the right word. Yeah, rel- yeah, relative to that person. Yeah. So your attitude now, from compared to um, before that day in October, it seems like it's really changed. It's about accepting responsibility, isn't it? As well, you know, for me, ultimately, I joined the army. So ultimately, the responsibility for what happened to me lies with myself. And by accepting that responsibility, I can move forward in my life uh, a whole lot easier. There's no point me blaming the army, blaming the government, blaming the Taliban, blaming Jamie. That wouldn't help me move my life forward. That would make me bitter and angry uh, and probably go in a different direction uh, mentally. But by accepting responsibility, I was able to move on. And I think it's too easy to, to blame other people for the situation that we're in. And if you were to go back, would you still join the army? Yeah, 100% I would still join the army because it's, it's maybe the person who I am today with the values and standards and, and that that I've got uh, instilled in me. You know, I've spoke about the other places that I've been to, but I've also um, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro while I was in the army. I've walked through the Grand Canyon. I've spent five years in Germany, two years in, in Canada. I've been to and seen some the most beautiful place in the world and done some of the most amazing things in the world that I would not have done if I would not joined the armed forces. So I suppose mm. being injured at 33, having done 13 years in the army, I've got a little bit of a different slant on things than someone who maybe joined the army at 16, goes to Afghan at 18, loses both the legs and thinks, hang on a minute. For those people, they've probably got a different view on, on the armed forces and what what they thought the army was going to offer to them. But to me, you know, I've had an absolutely an amazing career and look back with, uh, with no regrets uh, whatsoever. Yeah. And what I love, Andy, is, and I really noticed this when we had our lovely coffee, is you've got this amazing sense of humour. And when you woke up, wasn't the first thing you said, are my crown jewels still intact? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, very... Obviously, a very important question for, for a young guy at, at 33. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, a bit, of, a bit of banter in the army, a bit, of a, a bit of a laugh and a joke, you know. I do like to have a, a, a bit of a joke. And there's other occasions where I've, I've, I've used my humour and people have been a bit shocked about it. I remember um, on Remembrance Day parade um, in the November, after being injured, I went to camp and I was in my wheelchair and we were going along, and it's November, it's freezing cold. And uh, one of the guys just said, bloody hell, it's, it's freezing, I can't feel my toes. I said, I know, mate, neither can I. And the guys kind of looked at me, and they weren't exactly sure what to do. And then I started laughing, and then they all started laughing. And I think that's when you know, and your friends know, and your family know, you're going to be all right, you're going to get through this. You know, you're the same person, and mm. if you can laugh at yourself, then... You can get on with things, can't you? You know, I think it mm. is very important to have a sense of humour. So, Andy, I finish with these three questions, which I'd love you to answer. What is the place you go to when you're feeling fearful, and that can be in your imagination or a literal place? Where I go, my, my grandma has a, a memorial bench in the local cemetery, and she was absolutely 
inspirations for me, my, 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 grand, my grandmother, um, you know, I'd come home and leave and go to a house and we'd have a bacon butty and, and have a chat and sit in the front room and she always drank from a, from a cup and a saucer. You know, she'd never see her drinking from a, from a mug, you know, my grandma. And, um, I, she, yeah, she's really the person that I used to be able to speak to mm. even then when I was fearful before I went to Iraq and before I went to other places, I could go and speak to my grandma. Um, so, yeah, I go, I go and sit on a bench there and take some flowers and just sit and, re- and reflect and have a conversation with her. Oh, that's lovely, Andy. And what is the song that you listen to or piece of music when you're feeling afraid? Back in the day, some friends of mine was in a, in a band called Sound of Guns. And I remember before I got injured, I went and listened to him a couple of times in uh, in Leeds. So when I, when I become injured, obviously their music, when I was going through my rehabilitation, listening to their music, really used to get me um, on the front foot again. So I like listening to their music. And what was quite funny, I went to a concert that they played at in Liverpool, uh, in the top floor of some old Victorian building. I was in my wheelchair at the time and the um, the doorman had to carry me in my wheelchair up about four flights of stairs so I could get up there and listen to my, my mates in the um, in the band. So yeah, that's what I kinda of, that's the kind of music I listen to when I'm when I'm feeling a bit down or a bit depressed and things aren't going my way, I kinda of listen to that music and it, it lifts me up. And what would you do if you were not afraid? I think if I if I weren't fearful, I I wouldn't be too concerned about people accepting me or not so I suppose if I weren't fearful I'd just walk around and do what do what I'm doing without any thought of both being being accepted Andy thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself this really has been such an honour thank you oh no problem at all it's been absolutely wonderful I think um, the questions that have been asked and the way that it's been put together has really made me think about um, myself and, oh, and, my, and my fears so thank you very much for inviting me along Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.